0: Thank you, Wendell. I'm Ruth, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Ruth. And my home group is the 87 Group in Las Vegas, Nevada, where 102 to 104 is a normal summer temperature, and we have been 115 the last two days, hence the comment that it was quite comfortable here. <laughs> I thought the guilt and remorse you are talking about was the fact that your car got stuck here, and if you... Hadn't had to pick me up, maybe that wouldn't have happened. And I wasn't feeling at all guilty about that. But uh, his car did <laughs> his car did get uh, uh, stuck, and has been sitting here ever since we arrived. But I arrived safely. I'm um, I'm happy to be with you. I'm happy to be anywhere where there are AA members. I I feel comfortable when I walk in rooms with AA members, whether I know a lot of them or whether I know very few of them. There is just a kind of feeling that I have come home, and no matter what kind of uh, baggage. Designer or otherwise, I'm carrying with me. Um, it seems not so heavy when I'm in these kinds of rooms. Whether I'm speaking, whether I'm listening, or whether a problem or a subjects subject brought up that I don't even um, don't even identify with, or it isn't a problem in in my life today. It's it's a comfortable feeling for me to be with people like you. The um, I've been in Boise before. It was about it was either a year and a half ago or two and a half years ago for um, a spring assembly. I think it was at the Elks Club. And uh only two other times in Idaho. And I find Idaho not only the terrain but the amounts of people in groups kind of similar to Nevada, so I feel at home there are lots of wide open spaces with few people and and uh at least not in this area there's not a lot of lush greenery. We ha you have a little bit more than we do. Uh we don't have the river running through the city. But uh it it's kind of an at home feeling. I'm also Always very glad when I check into a hotel that gives you an old-fashioned key to put in the door. I don't know if many of you travel, but I want to tell you that high tech has hit the hotel industry as far as keys, and in a variety of ways. There are some that go in the door. There are some that go in, and, um, no, no, in the door, but nowhere near the handle. There are some that they have a special slot on the wall for. There are some that are coated with a strip, and you have to put in a certain way. And there are some that have holes in them that you have to put in a certain way. And some you put in and hold, and you open the door. And others you put in and you pull it out, and you wait for the green light and open the door. And it's just. <laughs> Just getting too complicated. The uh, and most hotel corridors are dimly lit, and you're usually carrying a bag. And if you are. Um around my age, give or take 10 years one way or the other, you probably need glasses to find the hole. And so it means setting the bag down, pulling the glasses out, figuring out what kind of key you have, which way it goes upside down, inside out, and hoping you can get in your room. So I'm very happy that I got a regular key that I remembered how to operate at the Red Lion in Boise. Um, Adventures in moving, or adventures in travel sometimes, it really is uh, um, frustrating. Sometimes the electronic ones don't work, and then you have to traipse back down and have them reprogram it or whatever special little thing they do with their uh, machine. I guess I'm uh, showing my age in the fact that I like uh, old-fashioned keys that I know what to do with. The um, I hope you will, uh, those of you that are partic- are from the Boise area or locally from Idaho or haven't been to a conference like this before, where um, you you have some service people here. Uh, take the time and and introduce yourselves to us. I was introduced to the Pacific Region Trustee, and that covers nine western states, which include, uh, of course, this one, and Alaska, and Hawaii, and Oregon, and Washington, all the way down to Arizona, and I'm currently serving on the the board of trustees from this region, but we also have another current trustee with us this weekend, and that's the uh, Webb Johnson Canada um, at-large trustee, and we have two past trustees from our region, one of whom will speak tomorrow night, and uh, Eric from Washington, and the reason I encourage you to introduce yourself and meet these people is uh, I guess stems from what happened to me the first time I saw a trustee or, or even heard the word and I thought it was something very special, and I thought it was somebody you needed an introduction for, preferably a written one, as he asked me. <laughs> and um, and uh, the one that uh, the first one that I ever saw was one who was kind of shielded by a uh, phalanx of delegates and, and kept very busy. And and I, and I who at the, I think was a GSR or whatever, we uh, didn't feel comfortable going up to and introducing ourselves. At least I didn't. I didn't notice a lot of others rushing up, and I really thought there was a separate kind of uh, of people in AA. And, and I have, uh fortunately, that was only a one-time instance, and I haven't um, met too many more that I felt that way. And maybe it was me. Maybe it wasn't uh, the other person. Maybe it was totally me. But I do want you to know that we're, at least for myself, I am an AA member that started with one day of sobriety, like anybody in this room, and am serving the fellowship in this particular position for a certain amount of time. And uh, you can identify with that, I hope, if you have been chairman of a meeting or secretary or uh, fought it out in intergroup, which seems to be a fight everywhere, or been a GSR or uh, that that we that we serve um, in particular positions for whatever reason. And there's some positions I would not want to serve in, and you wouldn't want me to serve in any of the treasury or the treasurer's positions either. Um, so. Please uh, don't feel that any of us are apart from or special or whatever. We just happen to be the one that was willing and available and selected at that particular time. But we start out the same as everybody else. And I think that's important because really you're the bosses as far as I'm concerned. And and we serve at your pleasure. And um, uh, as all your trusted servants, or some people say twisted servants, but trusted servants hopefully <laughs> do, they serve, we serve at your pleasure. And if you're not happy with your GSR and you're not happy with your secretary and you're not happy with somebody... You are the people that have to have to say something about it uh, either the eternal GSR which we all seem to have somewhere in the area that has served uh, life sentence in that spot and won't give it up or or the one that doesn't um, show up and and do the job and we all have those experiences and uh, aA hasn't fallen apart yet from either one uh, anyhow <coughs> a little bit <coughs> about what I was like and and um, and what happened and and uh, what I'm like now or how I got here certainly. If you told me 20 or 21 years ago that in 1988 and 89 I would be traveling a lot lot around the country or a lot around, particularly around the Pacific region, and talking and talking on particular topics uh, about in a fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm sure that I would have walked out of the room or laughed in your face one or the other. I'm not sure which, but I certainly wouldn't have believed it. And so I have become a believer in that I, I no longer try to predict my future. I don't know where I'll be next year. I don't know where I'll be five years from now and and wherever it is i I certainly if I'm still on this side of um of the earth i uh, hope it is serving the fellowship because, as somebody said at one of the panels at the panels afternoon, I serve because it does me good too and and it's in the preparation and the work that I find the rewards, not what whatever I seem to give or do for the fellowship the um I celebrated a uh, a birthday about a week ago at my home group. And I I don't know if your home group's like mine, but we if we have a birthday person, we usually ask them to chair. And they can pick the topic, and they can really do what they want with chairing the meeting. They don't have to stick to the format and pick the topic, whatever. And I chose, because I don't often hear much except the uh, traditions read off the shades that hang in the room. I asked uh, uh, somebody who'd been around a while if he'd read the long form of the traditions because it was my birthday meeting, and he said, yes, he would. So when I came to that part, I said, I introduced him, and I said, and Bob's going to read the traditions, and he's going to read the long form of the traditions. And I said, and if you've never heard them, because there are a lot of new people in, in my group um, that come and go, said they take a little longer, but they say a lot more. <clears throat> and he read them, and I noticed that there wasn't... Any little heads together murmuring and, and, and catching up with the day's events as I sometimes see when they read the Twelve Traditions and, and Chapter Five sometimes. Some of us who've been around a while, and I'll include myself in that because I'm sure I'm guilty of it, murmuring to a next door neighbor, how have you been? I haven't seen you for a long time and, and not paying attention. But I noticed when he read the Long Form of Traditions, you could have heard a pin drop and that kind of delighted me. So you might try that sometime if you get that opportunity. Um, or have them read the concepts. That gets people's attention, too. <laughs> the, um, I have a I have a little sadistic streak in me, if you haven't. Um, I, I believe you can have a lot of fun in, in the fellowship as, as, uh, with what you're doing, too. I don't think I would have stuck around if I couldn't have had some fun out of it. Anyway, I uh, I was born and raised in New York City for, of two professional parents who turned out also to be alcoholic. Um but in my my growing up years, mostly it was my father's drinking as a teenager that bothered me. And uh, it was just unpleasant to bring people home. Uh, he wasn't physically um, vicious, but he was very sour and mentally uh, unpleasant to be around. So you didn't bring people home. When my sister and I left home and went on to into nursing school and we both became nurses, uh, my mother essentially laid down on the bed and drank herself to death in six years. And I And my view of an alcoholic, other than somebody... That i had taken care of in the hospital was uh somebody who was weak-willed and didn't know any better and i couldn't imagine these two college educated people who were it looked like they were having a race to see who could kill themselves first and my mother won and that's the way i looked at it and i um i was so upset with her i'd kind of gotten used to it on my father i guess but i was so upset with her emotionally that i really just turned her off the last few years of her life and um, as far as I was concerned, the mother I knew was not there anymore. And about the only thing I did right the last year of her life was I did not. I finally like, was really becoming uh, uh angry with her, hurt by it, bewildered, and my drinking was starting also. I was I was going to give her a piece of my mind because that was going to make me feel better. I was going to tell her just how terrible she had been all all my life, and and how she tried to blame all family problems on. My father's drinking, and here she was on death's door way before he was, and it was all her fault, and and what an idiot she was. and Probably that's one of the few right things that I did uh, when I was drinking. I never got that opportunity. Um, The last time I went home, she ended up hospitalized and died in the hospital at time, and that was the time I was going to do it. So sometimes I do believe our higher power looks after drunks and fools and keeps our mouths shut at times. Um, That would have been a little bit of guilt I would have rather not tried to live with or had to get rid of uh, and I was thankful I had kept my mouth shut my mother died in 1968 and, and for many years um, hi BC um, the uh, before that I had no problem with my drinking. I looked at them and I said, I won't drink like them. And I, the answer to it is I will continue working. My mother was also a nurse and she never worked after her graduation. And I thought that was a secret. If you kept busy and you kept working, you wouldn't become an alcoholic. Uh, that's the other uh, genetic defect in the female side of our family. Uh, my mother was a nurse. I'm a nurse. My sister's a nurse. And my daughter's a nurse. So I, I, I guess that runs in families too. The... Um, I didn't run with a crowd that were big drinkers. I was raised with a lot of Italians. There was always wine with meals. It was no big deal to have a glass or two. Nobody went to excess. If you had some pizza, you might have a beer or two, but they just weren't a drinking crowd, and so the pressure wasn't there to do it. The pressure back then was to smoke cigarettes, this is regular cigarettes, folks, smoke cigarettes before you were given permission, because that was before the Surgeon General and everybody was telling you how bad they were. And most families said 16, 18, a few said 21 will allow you to smoke. Well, that for a teenager was like, well, I'll show you I'll smoke when I'm 14 or whatever it was before you were allowed to. And of course, I was in that group um, and um, and picked up smoking long before the permission was uh, supposed to be forthcoming. But drinking was not a big problem was intermittent. And somewhere in the mid-60s, that changed. Somewhere in the mid-60s, for whatever reason, I was married and I had, uh, by that point, two children and I I was working and doing all right then. I was married to somebody in the Air Force and it was like, kind of like, is that all there is? You know, you you have the house, although it was a rented house because he was in the service and you have the kids and you have the cars and the money was okay, you weren't rich or you weren't poor, but in the service you have some good benefits and it was like something was missing. Um, and I was disappointed and I really didn't know what I was disappointed in, but I found that some of the shifts that I worked and whatever, that I could go to sleep better if I had a couple of drinks before I went to bed, particularly if I worked the night shift. I'm not a a good night person. And for any of you that were in the service or worked in or around any uh, service hospitals with any of the corpsmen, you know that, and it may still be true, they could reach in their pocket and bring out an array of brightly colored little pills at any time, and that was before they counted everything, and those were also available. I can't tell you to this day why I didn't get more attracted to them. I certainly did try some of those drugs at some time, mostly the uppers, so that I could stay awake or so that I could drink more, but I also had more hangovers, and I thought it was the pills, so I didn't really get into them. I also had... um, I also had one position where, uh, but this is again, was before they counted all these things. Um, bottles of a thousand of the sleeping pills were sent to take care of um, VA patients, and it was up to us to distribute them. And there was no counting. I mean, it, it was there. I guess it, it just better living through chemistry was not attractive to me. Uh, it was the alcohol. Um, I, you know, I tried them, and, and they weren't it. The uh, the drinking got worse. I had a husband who was not an alcoholic, or was not then. I I haven't. He's an ex husband now, and I I don't know. I really don't care what his drinking habits are. But then he was not. He was uh, certainly a, a semi social, and that means very erratic. He wasn't a regular social drinker, and he started noticing how much I was drinking and made comments. Well, if you were like me, you didn't like people commenting about your drinking, and so that started the two-bottle game, and that's the bottle he's watching you drink out of, and that's the bottle you're really drinking out of. You have to have a few smarts to keep that up, because you have to make one the level in one go down just enough so that he knows that, you're, that that's really the bottle, but you have to keep the level up in the other one enough so you really uh, um, have something to drink on. And uh, I always said... Um, Thank goodness for large tide boxes. Men don't look in those for bottles. At least, at least mine didn't. Uh, he went to Vietnam for a year, and the controls were off. He really was the control for a while there. And when the uh, and that was in '67. And when the the drink was in my hands, there really wasn't any control at that point only I wasn't ready to give it up Um I would buy a fifth or a, or a pint I think they were fifths and I don't think I went to pints or half pints till he was back and I was back to hiding it and I would say well that'll carry me for two nights and it never seemed to or most of the time it didn't seem to that part of my drinking was probably the worst and most consistent and daily because he wasn't there and it was in um um Jacksonville, Arkansas, which is just north of Little Rock, and it was in a dry county. You had to drive out of the county to buy it. I want to tell you, my planning was not always the best it should be. I made some awfully hairy rides either the morning after or halfway into the night to that liquor store and wrote some, I'm sure, funny-looking checks uh, in the condition I was in. he came back, and the controls were back on, and by that, I meant I had to make a big deal of how much i was I was drinking in front of him. I was always a home drinker in social situations which were few. we didn't go out a lot. i um as long as it was in somebody else's hands, i I, I still was all right, but there were very few of those. I would work all week long and I would come home and I would feel I needed the reward or the relief or whatever it was, that I just wanted people to leave me alone. I deserve this. And I um, drink myself into oblivion almost every weekend. And if you have a fairly responsible job, after a while, employers get tired of you calling in on Mondays. And that's mainly uh, what caught up with me. I did not go to work drunk. I knew that that wouldn't go very far. But I had a lot of Mondays and Mondays and Tuesdays and that kind of thing. And my first contact with AA was uh, in uh, February of 1970. And it was another one of those Sundays. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to straighten up again. I'm going to have to call in for work. And I knew there were just too many of them. And we were in uh, living in Las Vegas at that time. I looked it up in the personal columns, and and there's still it's still advertised in the Las Vegas paper. There's a number for AA on the answering service. Took the call and connected me with a woman. And two nice ladies came to visit me that Sunday afternoon. And I arrogantly continued to drink in front of them. As a matter of fact, I remember sending one of my children to the refrigerator for another beer just to show them I, who was in control. And um, they said that, um, would I like to go to a meeting? And, of course, I was raised correctly and politely, and they had come and I should respond in the affirmative. So I said, yes, but not today. They said they'd be back, or one of them would be back the next day and take me to a meeting. And I said, fine, and they left. I, I didn't didn't go to work, but I did get some food in me by noontime the next uh, day. So of course I felt a little bit better, and I thought I really don't need to go to the meeting now. I've got it under control. But they are so nice, I'll go anyway. And I, the lady picked me up, and it was a women's rehabilitation house. And I walked into this room, and there were about, um, actually there were about fifteen to, or to twenty five women. It looked like a hundred and fifty, all silver haired. And all sitting and knitting and crocheting, and I thought, oh, is that that kind of club? Well, I don't belong to those. But I, I went in and I sat down and I listened, and I, I certainly didn't hear much. I did hear they weren't drinking. I didn't believe the lengths that some of them said they hadn't had anything to drink. And it was a, um, it was a Monday night meeting, and that coming up Wednesday was the beginning of Lent for that year. And so I decided I would give it up for Lent. And I gave up drinking for Lent in 1970. And I went to the Monday night meeting all during Lent with the nice ladies who had come to call me and didn't drink. But as you notice, I went on Monday before the actual opening of Lent. So, and Lent is 40 days. So you can imagine if your alcoholic thinking is like mine, the Monday or East, the Monday before the actual Easter, my brain was saying, you have done your 40 days. Your Lent is over. And I celebrated the end of Lent before other people that year. And I was off and running again for a few more months. Fortunately, not very long. My bottom came when I was no longer able to function in the house. I had been left with the two children and my husband was on leave and I had to call him up at home in the Midwest and admit to him that I could not stop drinking. For me, that was humiliating. It was <clears throat> he came home off of leave. He was not happy either, I can assure you. Um, one of the one of those ladies who'd made the twelve step call on me had come and removed the children from the house. I was still driving intermittently at that point till he got back and took the keys away. And he said that's enough of the tapering off. I don't care whether you go into that rehabilitation house or you go into the psychiatric ward, but you are leaving here. And uh, at the same time, my employer said, I don't care really where you're going. If you can straighten out, we'll consider some other kind of position for you, but you are leaving here. And they both said it at the same time, and I was forced to make some kind of decisions. And I wasn't real happy about it then, but I remember. I remember the feeling of somebody taking my car keys away and the feeling that he wasn't going to go get me anything more to drink other than that last six-pack of beer and an employer saying, we don't want to None of those were my choices, and I remember how I felt about other people making those kinds of choices for me. And I didn't like it. I, pr- I preferred making the choices. Even the wrong ones I had made, I liked making the choices. So I went into the rehabilitation house. Being a nurse, I had worked in psychiatric wards, and I liked the keys around my waist. Nothing but nothing about control there, I'm sure. <laughs> the uh, And uh, he swears, he told me what the rules were, that there are no phone calls for a couple of weeks. And, um, and they ask you to stay 30 days if he did fortunately i didn't remember it because as i got out of the car i arrogantly said to him you can pick me up tomorrow afternoon i'll be fine <laughs> well uh, it didn't work out quite that way the uh, i did stay the 30 days and i got over that terrible um hostile uh, mad attitude that that i went in there with and and actually i know now all that hostility and them anger was really aimed at myself. I thought it was aimed at other people or situations I'd ended up in, but it really was aimed at myself. And I stayed the 30 days and I listened to some of these, what I considered old broads, who told me they'd been sober for 20 years. And I thought you'd never, either you're lying, you haven't been sober that long or else you never had a drinking problem. But some of them were tough old broads and and they told it like it was. And uh, they didn't take any of that BS that I was handing them that I uh, I was different. But you don't understand. That was my favorite line. But you don't understand. Boy, did they understand. <laughs> and um, I found out just how that terminal e- uniqueness could have have gotten me into trouble and, and sent me uh, sailing uh, forth uh, on my own road. I never ran. I never did a geographic, but I certainly thought about them. I can remember lying in bed during the last year drinking, thinking, if I just get up and take those kids, this would be about two or three o'clock in the morning, and leave this house with a few clothes, I'm just going to drive to wherever I can get to and start all over. And he'll be sorry, and they'll be sorry, and it'll be different. And I can remember making those plans. Fortunately, I was too bombed to do anything about it. I'd fall back asleep. But the thoughts were there. And I can remember sobering up, which was before treatment. Uh, facilities in in Las Vegas anyway. And I can remember hallucinating that last night that I was home. I can remember the spider that walked up the dresser that I saw. And I still have the same dresser. I, I did make the mistake of asking my husband if he saw it. He didn't. But I I saw a man that was standing in the doorway and following me around at night. And I can bring those visions back uh and i try to keep them alive at least in my head cuz i don't want to repeat them and so far i haven't had to so my the uh, my last drink was um, june 25th 1970 and on june 26th which i consider my anniversary i celebrated 19 years this past june 26th for that i'm <laughs> eternally grateful i consider myself very lucky um, even though my past Family history certainly, I'm sure, would have assured me a, a spot in this organization or the eternal care unit. Um, <laughs> I relatively had little problem in a short alcoholic drinking career, although the thinking was certainly there and the, uh, and the uh, stubbornness and all that long before enough alcohol was added. I heard somebody explain it as they felt like they were a freeze-dried alcoholic. It was just a matter of adding enough alcohol until they fully blossomed. And I, and I thought, that's a good way to, since I, I didn't, Don 't feel I was alcoholic from the very first drink or didn't didn't get into trouble. I was kind of like a freeze dried when you had to add a certain amount of liquid and then it bloomed fine so i uh, i feel uh, particularly fortunate to have been sober that long and and it just doesn't it doesn't seem possible looking back and when i was new in a it didn't seem possible looking forward first lady who i heard celebrated 20 year like i told you i just kind of turned her off so if you if that's unbelievable to you and you don't believe it that's fine with me i know where you're at i was there and i i wanted her 20 years right away even though i didn't believe her and i i uh, i'm working toward it or whatever you're working toward and i got it just like you'll get it and that's one day at a time um And that's that's all we can have. I learned a lot of things in AA other than the fact that maybe I had this little drinking problem that people were unhappy with, which is about the attitude I went in with. And I really had a hard time with that, my life being unmanageable. The fact that my husband and employer didn't want me around anymore, didn't want me driving, didn't enter my mind that maybe this was part of the unmanageability. The first about 11 months of my sobriety was pretty good. I was on a pink cloud. It was like, oh, this is fun, and and let's help, and let's. Uh, I ran a few errands, and I was very active with the meetings in Las Vegas, particularly around this house where I had sobered up. I didn't work for about five months, and so I was went to lots and lots of meetings, particularly step meetings early on. And I, I just thought it was real simple: you stay sober, and 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 it's fun, kind of thing. Uh, fortunately, I guess our higher power lets us know when we're ready to to take some of the. Um, the bad news are the hard things we have to work on and apparently I wasn't ready the first year I needed a little floating time the uh, at 11 months sober my husband said he thought he'd like a divorce it really wasn't all that great whether I was drinking or sober and that was kind of a crusher I thought I'd straighten up pretty good the uh, <clears throat> so he went uh, off overseas again and I stayed in Las Vegas and we proceeded to uh, to get a divorce and that really is all right because we uh, were very different people and although we've been married 11 years, and, and uh, I don't consider the whole marriage by any means a mistake. Uh, there was a communication problem from the beginning. We're very good friends now, and, and um, unfortunately, I think I got the better end of the deal than he did, and I ended up in AA, so uh, sometimes things work strangely. But in any case, some of the first few character defects that I was able to uh, have illustrated for me um, were during this divorce. And it was in splitting up what, what proceeds we had, which really weren't much, but he did have some savings bonds through the, the payroll deduction system, as many of the service people did. He was going to get them, and they were in the house, and I was collecting them by serial number to send them to him. and I found gaps in some of the serial numbers. Well, I was a blackout drinker, so I really couldn't honestly say whether I'd taken them and tried to cash them, but I couldn't find them. He—he uh, he was a left-hander, or is a left-hander. I certainly would—I don't think even in my wildest drunken dreams would have tried to imitate his backwards slanted left-handed Jagosinski. I mean, Jagazinski's hard enough without doing it backwards and left-handed. Um, and so I finally wrote to him and I said, um, "I just can't find them. I'll keep looking, and, and when I find them, I'll send them to you." So he didn't think I was stealing them. He wrote back and he said, "Oh, don't worry about those." He said. Every now and then, once or twice a year, he said, I had to take some in cash, and because you were so tight with the household money, I couldn't buy you a birthday present or a Christmas present. Wasn't I a delight to live with? Mm. <laughs> that was one of the first little spiritual experiences about discovering your character defects. I had another one one time in an A meeting. If you think you need a character defect to work on sometime, ask a group that knows you well. A question, and you'll find somebody there that'll answer it for you. they were talking about sponsorship at this meeting. I probably was sober three two, three, four years somewhere there, and it was a women's group and i i people were talking about ten, twelve, fifteen people they were sponsoring, or five or six, or however many anything more than one was more than I had ever sponsored and i my uh, uh all knowing way said not all knowing, but in my uh again probably still arrogant way said. I don't know why, but I've never had many people ask me to sponsor them. (laughs) I found out why (laughs) that night. And um, you can, too, if you have that problem, and ask your home group. And uh, this... uh, this lady was only too happy to tell me not only during the meeting but after the meeting <laughs> why people didn't approach me. And it was because of my of my arrogant attitude and the vibes that I sent out that said, don't come near me, and I have all the answers. She said, you sound like so authoritarian when you talk that nobody wants to question you. And I... Uh, I took all that kind of in and I thought about it for a long while and, and I had to, I had to agree with her. I had to, to and she said, you, you look so stern all the time that nobody wants to come near you. They're not going to ask you to sponsor them unless they're sick. So, <laughs> so I, I realized that the one or two that had asked me were exactly like me. They, they projected this kind of stern, um Reserved, um face and they answered questions with a certain kind of authority that made you, you know, you talk to people or give you an answer and you really don't want to question any father. It's like, that's the answer fella, accept it or not. And I, and I guess we had those kinds of things. So I have worked. I did start to work on some of those character defects about not looking like I was so stern. And I, I know those were phony. Outsides that I had built to protect <clears throat> me from anybody getting to know me very closely, and I can still put that on in situations where I need it. Fortunately, I don't—I I rarely, have ever, needed it in in and around AA people. But in the business world, once in a while, it's it's convenient. The um, <laughs> um, I wasn't—you know—I wasn't born with a smile on my face, so I had to work sometimes, and I still do when I'm walking around thinking. Um, Am I, look, I can tell by how people respond to me on the street. If people nod their head or give you a little smile, I know I'm doing pretty good. If they just stare blankly at me, I know I've got that old face on again. <laughs> so, um, so I do work on that. I, I And I have made an effort to let people know that it is okay to get close to me, that um, my insides are a lot better now. They're not a, certainly 100%, and, and hopefully they never will be, because then I'll think again that I have all the answers. But uh, And I don't have all the answers. Um I sometimes know what direction I can point you in or I can go in to get the answer because I've had a lot of education in the last few years in AA, but I don't have all the answers. And there are really very few right and wrongs in AA. There are many, many shades of gray. And and when, when somebody comes in with that, I want the right answer to do with this group, this group is doing it wrong, and you have to come and tell them, kind of thing. And I always really secretly want to go and tear up their membership cards, but we can't. LAUGHTER um, <laughs> And I think every area deserves at least one wild hair group. I mean, think of how dull it would be if they all conformed to all 12 traditions all the time. You wouldn't have anything to talk about. Neither would we. So it's all right to make mistakes. And and I don't know about you, but that's personally in my life, that's how I learned. I learned by making mistakes. and I learned in service by making mistakes. When I was two and a half months sober, uh, the group that I was going to then asked me if I would like to serve as secretary. Now I had listened enough at that point to know that it was suggested for six months. So I said, I don't have enough sobriety. And they said, well, we think... That you may be responsible enough to show up. This was in the Women's Rehabilitation House. Yes, of course it was. Anybody could have done it because they would have set the meeting up without a secretary. That's, I mean, after a few years that came through the fog. Uh, <laughs> that they really didn't even need a secretary to run that meeting. But anyway, we think you're responsible enough and, and we don't mind giving you ten or twelve dollars to go to central office to pick up the literature and whatever and, and, and come run this meeting. Well, I just, I blossomed with that because I, I always liked to think that I was a fairly responsible person, and if I said I would do something, I I would bust my hump to do it, and, and I still say that now, although I don't absolutely say a yes a 100%. I found a superwoman isn't a good uh, role to fill either, um, but I said yes, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed beginning to pay back a little bit of what I had gotten from AA. I enjoyed the responsibility of having to show up, and uh, and make the coffee and clean up afterward. And that was back in the of uh, the pre styrofoam days when you had actual mugs or cups to wash. And and so it was a setup and a cleanup job. It wasn't just push a button and the coffee makes itself and everybody throws their cups away and empties their own ashtrays. Um, I enjoyed it. And then I went back to work and I couldn't do that because it was a daytime a meeting. And so I switched to secretary of an evening meeting. And from then. Um, I really I thrived on that kind of thing and I found I realized later on looking back at them it was because what I got from it not what I did for the group or whatever I thought I was doing for the group it was what I received out of it and I think now you know we hear about these democratic elections that we have for secretaries and chairmen and intergroup reps and sometimes even GSRs you know you're it nominations closed end of end of uh of election kind of thing and then at at some of those positions and then you get to some of the the committee or the area positions like your delegate and your alternate delegate and your chairperson and your treasurer and secretary and frequently you have three or four or five people willing to fill those. What happened from the time they were secretary or chairman or intergroup person when they were dragged in kicking and screaming and appointed to to make them change to be willing to serve at that level and i thought about that for a while because i i think we see it frequently in in some areas why do people are so reluctant to get in and it's politics and you have to almost appoint them and and whatever and once they've gotten their feet wet for two three positions whatever it is they want to stay active what am i going to do now i hear what people who are going to rotate And I I think, at least for me, the answer is because I found by serving in any of those positions that it was myself that benefited, and I wanted more of that benefit. So it really is a selfish reason. It isn't the prestige of saying, I'm the DCM or I'm the area delegate so much. That may be nice and it has its own, you know, side rewards. But really, when it's done, the person who has benefited the most, somebody else comes along, and pretty soon your name is forgotten. But the, the inside benefits don't ever leave. At least they have never left me. And I think that's why the change may be from dragging, kicking and screaming and appointing them and railroading them to the to the possibility. A few get that and are willing to keep going and, and be available and uh, willing to serve in those positions. And I've tried to be willing and available to serve in most positions that I thought I could do. Like I said, you wouldn't want me as your treasurer and I haven't offered to do that one either. But uh, And I think that's all right to recognize that some people have some talents in one area there are people that work in uh, hospital and institutions or on the treatment facility committees or or they work with CPC the cooperation with the professional community or public information I, I like the public information thing there's some of those that are just I, I just don't have the interest in and there are others that I really do have the interest in and I think that's okay there's so many of us you know it's okay to recognize what your good talents are and use them in AA, and um, surely, if you stick around long enough, you'll have an opportunity to even work on some of the not-so-good ones, um, uh, although you certainly don't have to serve in a position that you don't want. But if you just make yourself willing and available, if it's possible, wherever you are in in your sobriety and and work and family responsibilities, it isn't your choice if you're elected. It's generally the, the group's choice or the area's choice, or if you come out of the hat, it's even a higher choice than that. And if it isn't to be, it won't be. And and you can learn, at least I learned from some of those, too. Um, you'd be amazed what would happen, just being willing and available. I watched uh, one lady in Hawaii who for, lived there for 28 years, and every time, that would be 14 elections, she's been willing, available to stand for any area office and never been elected, never come out of the hat for 14 elections or 28 years. She was elected alternate delegate two years ago. So you never know. You never know. There was an example of somebody willing and available and not expecting anything. That that to me was great, rather than the person who who thinks somebody has said, Oh, you'll be the next you know what and and uh and put on a campaign. I don't think that's what AA is about and I like to hear that people stand for these positions, not run for them. Um but there are unfortunately people who do run. <coughs> and I guess We need the good and the bad examples, at least I do. Uh, It's taught me what not to do. It's helped me learn what not to do. So I told you about a couple of those little defects that were um, so nicely presented to me to work on. There have been others along the way that I have um, discovered. I I had a relationship after that divorce. I had a relationship in AA with somebody who was much, really much sicker than I was, and unfortunately... I, um, I learned the hard fact that many, I guess, nurses, whether they're alcoholic or not, that we don't have to be professional in our private life as well as what we're getting paid for. And this was far more than I was willing to handle. And that taught me some lessons, too. The I, I've watched my kids, uh, the daughter, who I depended on, had running for the beer and taking care of her son at 12, I mean my son at 12 years old. <clears throat> he was six, and she really bore the brunt of my drinking much more than he did. At least she was aware of it more. Um, I've seen our relationship uh, come together because uh, she was conceived and born at a time when she really wasn't wanted, and I uh, was not married <clears throat> with the first marriage. I got pregnant and, and had to get married. There weren't options back then, and I never really felt close to her, and I had trouble touching her, and I I felt guilty about that, and I had a mother who told me I was a... a um, well, unnatural was one of the words she used. I can't remember. Uh, a cruel and unnatural mother, she called me at one time. And that stuck in my mind. That was mainly because I wanted to work and didn't take care of my daughter. And I had all those kinds of things going around my head. I couldn't, I had a hard time touching her. And I mean physically touching her. I don't mean talking to her. And I, and she's the kind of very, very, uh, um, insight, has a lot of insight. She knew that. And, and, um, and I knew that she knew it. It was a difficult relationship to, to mend. <clears throat> we have an excellent, Relationship now, and and there's a lot of hugging and and touching, and um, she's uh, no longer doesn't live at home anymore. And like I said, she's a, a nurse. She's on a, a rescue helicopter, and she's doing well in her profession. She has a lot of inner strengths in her all through her twenties that I know I didn't have. I don't know where she got them from. Maybe she got them from having to be the adult when I wasn't. But I <clears throat> I feel fairly comfortable. I'm with her and how she sees herself and if she ever has a drinking problem I don't think um that it will floor her I think uh, she knows what to do about it. I just at the moment I just don't see any of those traits in her at all although she got the brunt of it the um but it was a difficult relationship and I'm and I'm certainly glad it's mended now she's uh, uh almost 31 and um that's hard to believe too um she hated turning 30 and I I just loved rubbing it in and uh, she'll turn 31 next week and she called me in a panic 2 weeks ago and said, "Mom, I have terrible news." And uh, I said, "What?" She said, "I found my first gray hair." I said, "Oh my god, before you're 31?" <laughs> and uh, so we have a good relationship now. She lives she has a fiance and um, and they celebrate the anniversary of their engagement. It's going on 4 years now, so but they have a good relationship. My son, however, who is now 25 years old, I see some of those family traits, not the nursing ones either. And, um, raising him without a father was a little tougher than, uh, than she turned out. He does not have the inner resources she did or the discipline. He was not a reader and it was, is not the kind that to entertain himself. He wanted the entertainment from externally. And I can guarantee you in Las Vegas that even in high school and junior high school, there's plenty of, entertainment on the sidewalks and opportunities for extracurricular activities. And he was missing many, many times at school. Uh, he was skipping, and we had rotating Fs on the report card. You know, Jimmy, bring this up. Okay, but he'd bring that up, and another one would go down. He was picked up for possession a couple times. It just seemed like every time out opened my mouth, I was saying no to him, probably because he's very much like I am. He's very stubborn, he uh, lived for the moment, uh, money burns a hole in his pocket, and, and it just was no all the time. And so finally I made amends to my ex-husband and I sent him his problem 15 year old. And um, <laughs> he had just gotten remarried to somebody quite a bit younger, and where they were back in England and living in a very small town and uh um, north, about 90 miles north of London. I can guarantee you that the town of Layston, if you've ever heard of it, in Suffolk County, England, does not have the evening and nighttime activities that Las Vegas does. <laughs> and uh, he did get his head uh, turned around, and he finished high school and, and got into some sports and, and did graduate. And he came back, and then he tried to live on the, off the fat of the land a little while, and we talked about the benefits of entering the service, and so he did go into the Navy for three years. And see the world and uh he's this he's been out now for 3 years he's had some problems and uh he certainly has a different personality when he has too much to drink he also was born with a ptosis of one eyelid which is a slightly droopy eyelid it's been corrected twice as a child but it's still there when he's very tired it droops when he's had anything more than one drink it droops when he's had anything other than a regular cigarette to smoke, it mm-hmm. droops. There is no getting around it, uh, with his fellow. <laughs> he is nailed. The, um, but the thinking is there, and the two accidents he's had so far on a motorcycle have been alcohol-related, although he would deny it to this day, that uh, the reason he laid his uh, motorcycle on its side in California when he was stationed on the Enterprise up in Oakland was... Um, coming off a freeway. Well, how fast were you going, Jim? 45. Well, that didn't sound too bad. What was the speed zone? 15. 15? he said, well, the dumb highway uh, department in California made this elbow. They didn't have to make an elbow. They could have made a straight off ramp, and it wouldn't have happened. Now, I understand that kind of thinking. It wasn't his fault. It was the California... Uh, Department of Highways that made the off ramp wrong. So maybe I detect a little a little bit of it there. He certainly knows a lot more about AA at his age than I did um, when I was 25. Uh He's been to some of the the, the birthday uh celebrations um, that my groups had for me. None recently, but I guess one about one or two years ago. But it's an open subject. And so if he has a problem, hopefully um He will know where to go, but I'm sure he's still too young and too healthy, and he bounces back too fast now. Uh, for it to really be a problem and he is uh, working. I see it there though. My sister I told you is also a, a nurse and an alcoholic. She's had a lot of problems and I, I hope that ne- by now she has um, m- maybe six months again, uh, and she's had as much as two years and and then um, not and she's had some problems with some other some of the other drugs and being a nurse legally sometimes doctors would give you large amounts of, of drugs and um, she got addicted to some of them and it's very difficult to to help a relative at least I find that. It's very difficult. So I don't say much there if she asks I say something but she has she lives in Florida and she has a group and she has a sponsor and all the years that I when she had problems it was very difficult for me not to say are you going to AA how often are you going to AA what does your sponsor say and are you reading the big book and have you had a drink and the, you know all that kind of thing but I didn't because I knew that wouldn't help especially since I'm the older sister and and uh, and that would create some problems. If um, if your story or the, the way you came to AA isn't anything similar to mine, that's fine. There's all kinds of us here. And if even if your recovery hasn't been very much, and if you haven't had any opportunity to work on your character defects, um, hopefully you will have. I had, um, this last winter, I had a, a terrible non-spiritual awakening for myself in that I allowed somebody that I work with, not an AA member, to continue to annoy me to the point where I was in a rage and I was actually shaking and hyperventilating and I had uh, murder on my mind and hate in my heart, for sure. The um, And revenge was the name of the game. And I my head told me that this was wrong. My head told me this is not the way to handle it and yet I could not assimilate that. I had this, it, it had, uh, I'd let it build to that extent. And I have to say that I let it build, because I have known this person, worked with him for 11 years. He has not changed in 11 years. Uh, he is still irresponsible. And I had to put up with it for 11 years, and I, we just got to the point where he pushed a button, and I responded. And he was pushing a button for, I mean, he admitted that he liked to push the buttons, and uh, he got a response. Um, and so we had a uh, um, a confrontation. And it wasn't resolved very well. And as a matter of fact, he's, uh, it is still isn't resolved very well. And I had a smaller episode of about it uh, about a week ago with it. But it lets me know that I'm still human. There isn't any perfection. And sometimes when you think you have everything under control, you will have something put in your life to remind you that you never have everything under control. And that uh, for me, anyway, it's dangerous to try and slip back into that mode of thinking my life is manageable again just because mm-hmm. things seem to be going all right. When some of those things happen, as uncomfortable as they are when I'm going through them or even close to them, I find that when I get on the other side of it, if I have done the footwork that I should, I am far more comfortable. And I'm not at all scared anymore about making mistakes or saying the wrong thing or not making a good impression or you won't like me or he won't like me or whatever uh, kind of thing. It's much more an internal kind of thing. I like serving our fellowship in any capacity. If you haven't served in one capacity or another, whether it's secretary or a local roundup or convention committee, try it. It may not be your bag, but try it, because you can get incredible rewards. For anybody who hasn't read, I think one of our most underread books is AA Comes of Age, which tells a history, the early history of our fellowship. And the it's really miraculous that we're here and still growing fifty years later. And 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 worldwide, I mean already behind we're behind the iron curtain already i don't know where else there is to go i guess the moon if there's some people there it's amazing and all because of you and i having a drinking problem and wanting to do something about it and there's still plenty of work in our own backyard there's still only about 10 percent of us alcoholics that, that achieve that get the message and 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 get into sobriety with any length um so there's still a lot of work here but isn't, sometimes I think back and I wonder why me? Why was I chosen? Why was I picked on? Um, why did that employer decide he'd had enough? Why did that husband decide he had enough that time? Or if yours was legal, why did I get stopped? Drink, you know, driving under the influence, or however you got here? Why? Um, and incredibly lucky that I stayed. I hope I can continue <coughs> to serve the fellowship in whatever capacity is available. I know I won't go away. Um, whether it's on a local level or whether it's on a um, more than local level. And I've also been able to recover in other areas of my life. I never gave anything back to my profession as far as um, nursing and, and recovery. And I have, um, I'm now um, a co-owner and administrator of my own home health program, something I wouldn't have thought of doing. Uh, in my previous life, I wouldn't have had the the confidence or or been willing to take that kind of risk. And I have um, offered some services in the in the nursing profession to some of the uh, um, I don't want to say disabled nurses. I can't think what Nevada calls them, but anyway, the the nurses that get into trouble with either drugs or alcohol, not not necessarily <laughs> through AA. So I can pay back a little uh, little bit in there. Uh, there's just so many things that can happen, even if you don't do any of those things uh if it's just in your own life and your own personal and business life that you can't imagine at least I could never have imagined where I would be. The um the state of Nevada has been very good to me not only AA wise but professionally too. And a lot of it, both in and out of AA, has just because I was willing and available when somebody asked and um and things have happened. Try it. I um it's it's been a joy to be with you again. Like I said, I just, I feel comfortable and I feel at ease and uh the headache that I had in Las Vegas thinking of my uh, friend that's <clears throat> the burr under my skin left the minute I took off as I knew it would. And I haven't had any indigestion either. The, um, it's nice to just get away and to be with my kind of people. And I hope that I am. Um, can continue to serve you in whatever capacity, and I hope that you try serving us, too, because it really is rewarding. Thank you. (laughs)